welcome to episode 23 of the Pouring My Art Out podcast. A matter of perspective. Today, I'm going to try something new. Again. This episode is about art. No crack squirrels. Wait, what? Sorry, Jimmy. Hey, don't worry about it, man. No funny ads. Just an in-depth look at one vastly important element of art and painting and drawing in particular. And that element is perspective. Oh, and unless I break this down into two parts, this might be my longest episode yet, or ever. A study into the importance and significance of, and brief historical overview detailing the development and evolution pertaining to an essay expounding upon the influences and interactions between and including a general synopsis exposing and comparing the formal constraints and limitations apparent in, as expressed in this biographical report on the difficult struggle and eventual mastery of the great contribution to and possession of the skill and talent known as perspective and its place in art including my own commentary and speculations about with insights into my unique perspective on perspective and how it relates to the world. Perspective By a strange coincidence, according to Webster, the beginning line of many definitions of the word perspective reads as follows. To look through, see clearly. The text goes on to say, amongst other things, the interrelation in which a subject or its parts are mentally viewed, the technique or process of representing on a plane or curved surface the spatial relation of objects as they might appear to the eye, the capacity to view things in their true relations or relative importance, a visible scene, especially one giving a distinct impression of distance, a picture in linear perspective, This does not seem to be of much use if you did not already know what perspective was. The appearance to the eye of objects in respect to their relative distance and positions. Mr. Roger, in keeping with his perspective of the English language and in his peculiar stilted and terse wording, elaborates thusly. View, angle, aspect, position, field of view or vision, vista, prospect, scene, vantage, point in parentheses, outlook, viewpoint, scope, grasp, appreciation, comprehension, point of view, judgment, his caps, not mine, distance, context, orientation, insight, colloquially, slant, see relation, so I did, relation, relationship, reference, connection, dependence, correlation, affinity, kinship, interest, relevancy, comparison, ratio, proportion, Bond of union, relate to, refer, regard, draw a parallel. Now that is funny, don't you think? Compare, interrelate. Hmm. Perspective is the rain and rudder of painting. Leonardo da Vinci, creator of the theory of curvilinear perspective. To show three dimensions on a flat surface requires not only perception of depth, but depth of perception as well. 
an artificial mathematical representation of dimension expressed through an emotional artistic medium where creative ideas are presented by incrementally measured exchanges of pigmentation which disguise themselves as light and shadow, all put into the shareable form with tools fashioned from everything from space-age alloys to animal hairs, for viewing by masses ill-adapted towards appreciating them by persons of dubious mental stability. That is my perspective on perspective in art. Arthur Brown, creator of a few theories of his own. Perspective is the approximation of the way in which the human eye perceives distance, light, shadow, and spatial relationships. Hey, I've had a few of those myself and refers to a single eye only, and how it perceives objects by reflection of light off variously angled surface planes along straight lines. If only to set the stage, let's go back a bit and remind ourselves of a few of the pertinent facts about the development of art in our history. I suppose 4,000 years ought to be far enough. Egypt has a rich art history beginning well before our own civilizations, let alone our perspective on art, not to be confused with our perspective in art, which does not always stimulate the Western palette for art. Is that a pun? Because they showed little inclination towards the illusions of space or depth. This may well have been because the rigid structure and intensity of their religion allowed only for artistic expression that followed prescribed patterns and was more of a language of religious and social symbols. The Greeks, as with so much else we still do in our lives, began many of the artistic methods and practices that led to art as we know it. They drew more as they saw, but do not seem to have delved too deeply into set formulas or theory. It was the individual skill and observational abilities that set some few apart from the rest, but in their architecture are found many of the lines and forms and shapes that would lead to so many schools of artistic endeavor. Sometime later, the Chinese and Japanese were evolving their own artistic style, suited to their cultural taste, making wonderful use of landscapes and natural views, utilizing nature's own creations to portray nature, uh, more naturally. This technique employs the use of mist or fog and cloud and sea spray in concert with the overlapping of the often incredible scenery, and combined with delicate use of light and shadows to both obscure and diffuse and yet still highlight the backgrounds, causing incredible effects of perspective qualities of depth. This was well before circa 1000 AD. See, as an example, the works of one Fan Quan, particularly his Travels Among Mountain Streams. This style, as a note of historical interest, is virtually identical to the style known as atmospheric perspective, for which Leonardo da Vinci is given credit for discovering, although this creative burst preceded his own experiments by more than 500 years. The Romans, as they were ever so inclined to do, stole... Uh, I mean borrowed, nearly all the concepts of their more inventive predecessors and then showed their other talent, the ability to take a good idea and carry it still farther. This they did with every art form and medium they could lay their hands on and began the groundwork of a rational system based on optical rules and simple measurements. There were some highly inventive landscape artists that convincingly portrayed a modern approach. 
And then, most likely on the verge of their own renaissance, they, well, you know how it is when you live next to those pesky barbarian hordes, Rome fell, or was pushed. And the Byzantines rejected all this newfangled artsy stuff, returning to divine symbols and strict order. To fast forward through the slow parts, let's face it, the Dark Ages were decidingly depressing, and not only in the field of art. And for the moment, ignoring entirely poor old Hieronymus Bosch, a cheerful chap who must have positively lit up the world with his obviously buoyant and bubbly personality, and whom we will revisit later in what can only be called excessive depth, to move into that artistic heyday known as the Renaissance. In doing so, we are forced to skip over some notable achievements of the preceding centuries and some of the early, though incomplete, groundbreaking work with perspectives by some Italian artists. For further study, feel free to look up Giotto de Bondone, circa 1267 to 1337, or Ambrogio Lorenzetti and Taddeo Gaddi. The Renaissance circa 1420 to 1527. Following closely in the wake of the explosion of artistic fervor sweeping across Europe that came to be known as the Renaissance, and only one of a multitude of progeny that was to spring from this creative supernova, was a new pictorial system devised by two Florentines. This was Leon Battista Alberti, 1404 to 1472, an artist and architect, and Filippo Brunelleschi, 1377-1446, a sculptor and architect, later to become famous for his great dome atop the cathedral in Florence. Together they are credited with sharing in the discovery or invention of this new artistic method, the linear perspective. Although, in my view, this is like saying that someone invented sex just because they happened to be the first one to try the same stuff in a different manner, took notes, and did a comprehensive study, wrote a book or two about it, and began teaching their novel method to anyone who would listen. Be that as it may, they certainly are responsible for bringing the most overlooked technique into the light and being the first to scrutinize it and to do detailed experiments once it was exposed. Alberti seems to be responsible for the geometry behind it, while Brunelleschi created a marvelous gadget to demonstrate perspective called the Peep Show, involving a panel painted with the inside of a cathedral and with a hole drilled through it at a point which would come to be called the vanishing point. The viewer held up the panel, looking through the hole from the back at a mirror held in front of the panel. There is evidence that this system was borrowed from some ancient and medieval map makers and surveyors. This work was expanded upon by many notable figures in years to come, including, among the hosts of others, Paolo Uccello, Piero della Francesca, whom I think it is interesting to note devoted his life to studying geometrical solids and mystical numbers, and was convinced that the perfect symmetry and geometry in nature was proof positive of the existence of God. Also note the works of Andrea Mantegna, particularly his painted room, and of course, El Da Vinci, who will be examined in due course. With little time to devote to individuals, I will continue with the list of notable contributors, which will make a useful reference for future study. Diego Velasquez, Wenzel Jamitzer, probably pronounced that wrong, see his Perspectiva Corporum Regularum and his Perspective Machine. 
J.M.W. Turner, Professor of Perspective, Royal Academy, Baldessori Lenci, Ramsden's Optograph, Van Hoogstraten's Perspective Boxes, Hans Vredermann de Vries' Art of Perspective, Andrea Pozzo and his Dome in the Church of St. Ignazio, Rome, Durer's Net, a drawing device for setting up a grid in front of a subject, William Hogarth's Perspectival Absurdities, are just some of the people and their inventions and writings and works of art that lent themselves to the endeavor. Also to touch on the psychology aspect, you may wish to look at Max Beckman, who used space to express states of mind, and Salvador Dali, who explored dreams and the subconscious through a use of traditional perspective techniques. The Artists Now, to go into a little more depth with the individuals concerned. Leonardo da Vinci, 1452-1519 Mathematician, philosopher, architect, engineer, sculptor, scientist, author, writer, musician, artist, and one of the only people in history whom I can be fairly sure had even less free time than me. He said, linear perspective cannot work in outdoor scenes without the aid of color and light. He found this to be the main flaw in Alberti's system of linear perspective and created curvilinear perspective to make up for this weakness. He defined atmospheric perspective, a coloristic concept involving light being absorbed and reflected by mist, dust, and moisture in the air, and the resulting tonal contrast and diffusion. See also his studies of visual pyramids emanating from round objects, problems with wide-angle vision, blurred edge phenomenon, and anamorphosis. Hieronymus Bosch, real name Jeroen van Aken, 1453-1516. Naked people riding on giant cats and carrying big fish past egg-shaped junk pile castles. What more do we really need to say about good old H.B.? Naked people and big fish. Naked fish and big people. Big naked people that are half fish. Fish seem to play a predominant role in his work. In fact, you can't swing a dead cat or a dead fish in one of his paintings without smacking into someone perversely preoccupied with all that is unwholesome about fishiness. This could seem mildly disturbing, but in his defense, there is so much obvious religious symbolism involved in his pieces that we ought not to jump to any hasty conclusions. Though it seems that the upbeat mood of the times, being the beginning of the Renaissance, seemed to have been lost on Mr. Bosch. He not only makes a good study on perspective, but the psychology of and in art as well. No one expressed delusional paranoia like our friend H.B. The symbolism is often vague. What appears to be ill-contrived metamorphosis may well be clever riddle-like truths. The artistic device of using creatures to represent evil incarnate has a long past, as in the use of the snake in the Garden of Eden. Cold-blooded, scales, no human-type emotion, they have an alien quality that lends itself well to the concept. Or he may have had a traumatic episode <laughs> with a fish as a child. <laughs> His garden of earthly delights is as close to a hallucinogenic experience as is possible to portray on canvas. Heaven and hell, madness and genius, torment and ecstasy, insight and blindness, all struggle for dominance in his visions, and probably his dreams as well. And in this he captured the role of religion as pertains to art, especially during the dark and medieval ages, even though he lived in the very late Middle Ages. 
He may have been suffering a middle age crisis. Ha ha ha, see what I did there. Worship and adoration were inextricably mixed with abject terror and piteous groveling, as if he could not decide who to fear most, his god or his devil. Despite his gloomy tendency, having been to Amsterdam, I can say the Dutch lean towards gloom, maybe because their country is one rainstorm away from being under the sea. His art is a view into not only a use of perspective and light, but into a tortured soul as well. It is a mix of futuristic and anachronistic juxtaposition, where fright and fancy and light and dark mingle in a blend of creativity and conventionality. By a strange coincidence, he did a painting called Ship of Fools, a fine example of atmospheric perspective and also the name of a Grateful Dead song. Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec 1864 to 1901. Born to luxury, impeccably educated from an artistic family, his health was not good and a bone disease caused his body to stop growing at the age of 13 and then rapidly deteriorate. Art both soothed his pain and in many ways echoed it. He excelled at self-education, which is a trait I happen to share, studying furiously any and all forms and styles and mediums and seeking out advice from artists he admired. His paintings invariably involved movement and activity, seldom showing anything static, which may have been due to his lack of physical freedom. He had a real knack for catching a personality with the simplest of line sketches, each thought or mood caught with the turn of a lip or the arch of an eyebrow. And all his work showed a true respect for the individuals, a rare dignity with never a judgment on occupation or lifestyle. See his works from his red light district period and the grace with which he portrayed the masses and individuals that called this their home. He often produced works seemingly well below his abilities. This is accounted for by the fact that his portraits were primarily studies for further works. And as his friend of his art school days, one Gauzy, said, he derides painters obsessed with the technicalities of their field. Gray predominates his work and many of his portraits are primarily drawings enhanced with color, considering restraint essential to every work of art. The most fascinating aspect of his use of perspective is his lack of respect for the same. Here is his quote on the subject. Only the human figure exists. Landscape is and should be nothing but an accessory. The painter of landscapes exclusively is nothing but a bore. The sole function of landscape is to heighten the intelligibility of the character of the figure. When a face painter executes a landscape, he treats it as if it were a farce. Dega's landscapes are unparalleled because they are visionary landscapes. As his health, and particularly his mind, began to fail him, he reverted to simpler images. He was confined by psychiatrists for a time, which might not be a bad idea for all artists. But his lack of mental retention, though adding a necessary immediacy to his work, did not alter his view of backgrounds being secondary to character and life. Both the inner child and the technical genius were still apparent, leading one to ponder just where the expression of insanity might be in evidence. The conclusion seems obvious, at least to me, that madness is not only a common trait among artists, but perhaps a useful, if not necessary, part as well. His condition was later downgraded to an eccentricity, a popular condition among the French then and now. 
Though variously described as French nobleman, wicked dwarf, melancholy monster, and depraved genius, his redeeming wit, charm, dignity, passion, not to be confused in any way with the depravity, though there may well be a connection, his generosity and sporadic gaiety seem to mollify somewhat his detractor's treatment of him. My favorite quote attributed to this artist is this, True apathy does not invoke recognition mostly because it sounds so much like one of those charmingly inscrutable bits of wisdom that the blind master was always using to baffle poor little bald-headed grasshopper in the Kung Fu series. He also said of himself, As to views, I am incapable of doing them. Even the shade, my trees look like spinach. As a young art student, when the first embers of the great Impressionist firestorm were beginning to spread the flames, Lautrec was well acquainted with one of the sowers of the seeds of this harvest of controversy, one Vincent Van Gogh, whose temper was evidently so bad that his fellow students did not dare to question his revolutionary artistic theories, which may well have been his single most important contribution to the Impressionist movement. M. C. Escher 1898 to 1972. I was surprised to discover how many artists were using the style associated today with Escher well before his time. His works exploit perspective in incredible ways. What you expect to see comes in conflict with the evidence of your eyes. He exploited geometric impossibilities, multiple viewpoints, and one vanishing point seen from multiple viewpoints so that the wall ceiling up down, all lost their meaning. I'm somewhat surprised that Norman Rockwell was not part of this episode, because of his unique ability to use the people in his paintings to play such a major role in the perspective. Terms and Definitions According to Gibson, there are 13 varieties of perspective sensory shifts, although four are related to motion and binocular vision, which are not replicated in the two-dimensional representation used in drawing. He also said, There is no such thing as perception of space without a continuous background surface, and also claimed, Memory and past stimulations are essential foundations of perception in the present. Gibson's Nine Types of Perspective 1. Texture Density of texture of surface increases as it recedes in the distance. 2. Size As objects recede, they get smaller. 3. Linear or one point. Parallel lines join at a vanishing point. 4. Atmospheric or three point. Perspective of infinity using haze obscuring to alter depth. 5. Blur. Blurred backgrounds to focus eyes on foreground. 6. Relative upward location in the visual field. Horizon is eliminated, relying on the size gradient to gain perspective. 7. Shift of texture of linear spacing. Near and far objects in the same field of vision both seen clearly. 8. Completion of continuity of outline. Outline of near object is complete, distant ones broken. 9. Transition between light and shade. Abrupt change of brightness interpreted as change of object. Conventional types of perspective. 1. One point. View or object placed with major plane parallel to the picture plane. 2. Two point. Major vertical lines or edges of object parallel to picture planes but not most sides. 3. 
three-point. No major planes or edges of objects or scene parallel to picture plane. The four basic elements of perspective. One, diminishing of size. Two, foreshortening. Three, convergence of parallel lines. Four, overlapping of forms. Bibliography. Art, a history of painting, sculpture, and architecture by F. Hart. Prentice Hall, Inc. Art Through the Ages by Helen Gardner, Harcourt Press. Art the Way It Is by John A. Richardson, Harry Abrams, Inc. Bosch by Carl Linfert, Harry Abrams, Inc. Eyewitness Art Perspective, a visual guide to the theory and techniques from the Renaissance to pop art by Allison Cole, National Gallery Publications. History of Art, a survey of the major visual arts from the dawn of history to present day. H.W. Jansen, Harry Abrams, Inc. The Human Venture, The Globe Encompassed, a World History Since 1500, by Anthony Essler, Prentice Hall, Inc. Interior Architecture, Drafting, and Perspective, Frederick H. Jones, Ph.D., William Kaufman, Inc. LaRousse Encyclopedia of Modern Art from 1800 to the Present Day, edited by the Chief Curator of the Louvre, Prometheus Press. Lettrec by Lettrec by P. Huisman, Chartwell Books. Perception of the Visual World, James Gibson, Boston Press. The Science of Art, Optical Themes in Western Art from Bruno Lashi to Surat by Martin Kemp, Yale University Press. And then there were the billions of books I scanned during my endless hours of research and the countless libraries I visited during the writing of this humble piece and which I was not bright enough to think of adding to the list. So that is what this podcast would be like if I just talked about art, did serious research, and didn't have crack squirrels living in my head. Bye, people. Bye, people.